while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices radio program, and I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. And my Reasonable Voice guest today is Carmenita Higginbotham. Did I get that correct, Carmen? That is correct. Thank you. First try. (laughs) Thank you. Well, there's a lot that Carmen and I have in common, and we've been having a a fun time even before we started recording. But now we're going to entertain you, and edutainment will be one of the things we accomplish today, I'm sure. But Carmen Higginbotham is an associate professor of art history and American Studies at the University of Virginia. She is now the new chair of the McIntyre Department of Art and Program American Studies. Her research focuses on art of the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, with a specific emphasis on racial representation and urbanity, and she is also a scholar and professor of classic Hollywood film, which is only one of the reasons I asked her to be on the show today. (laughs) But also stardom and the impact of popular cultural forms, including, by the way, but not limited to, America's fascination with superheroes and the contribution of Disney's interpretation and presentation of them. So, welcome to the show, Carmen. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm, I'm feeling great. We've had a good time already, and we're only two minutes in. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I should confess, uh, or maybe not, but Carmen is probably, I'm pretty certain, the only radio guest I literally chased through the parking lot to ask her to be on the show. Uh, <laughs> that is true. That, you did follow me out. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. And, and so here's the thing. We were attending, among many others, of course, the Bon Voyage celebration of the former McIntyre Department of Art Chair, and uh, uh, Lawrence Getty. And we are today welcoming to the Reasonable Voices the new chair, but she is um, she's no stranger to Charlottesville, nor to UVA, of course, even though she's the new chair. But Carmen, where did you live before Charlottesville, and what did you do there? Oh, 
um, well, I actually was fortunate enough to move to Charlottesville while I was uh, still a, just finished. I just finished up my dissertation, oh. and so before that, I lived in Washington in Northern Virginia, and before that, in Manhattan, as I uh, did some work um, on my dissertation and also doing research and working at the International Center of Photography. And before that, I was at home in the Midwest. So sort of been traveling around quite a bit, living that lifestyle of an academic. But wow. um, bigger cities slowly moving south uh, <laughs> before I arrived here. You knew I knew something of our common uh, on-the-road travels. Uh, but I wanted to ask you just to confirm, because I too, um, well, I lived most of my adult life in New York City. But mm. uh, but also in Washington D.C. as well, and of course, mm-hmm. became married to the University of Virginia. What can I say? So <laughs> uh, similar paths, and certainly I love your interest in uh, cultural issues and Hollywood film. So let's get to that. Um, how long have you lived in Charlottesville then, and how long have you been at the University of Virginia? Well, the two are are related. I moved here for the opportunity to teach here, and so I've been here almost 14 years now. Oh, wow. So I've I've seen the city sort of grow uh, exponentially, it seems like, and as well as the university. Uh, And so it's it's a wonderful opportunity to link one's understanding of an institution with one's experience in a town. you get the sense of the relationship between the two and in a sort of a really pure way and the challenges of that kind of relationship. But the two are are directly in line. I can appreciate that. And I'm going to throw out something I I ask a lot of people who, my guests who are involved with the University of Virginia and or Charlottesville, Virginia. You have lived in Charlottesville longer than I have. So I'm Mm -hmm. going to ask... um, the the evolution of Charlottesville uh, mm-hmm. from the time you were here up to and including, given some of your focus, uh, research focus, uh, up to and including last summer, August 2017. How did you see that arc? Uh, did you see things coming? I mean, were there uh, warning signs, pink flags, or, or what? What, what, do you th- what do you think? Give us your historical perspective. I'm not sure anybody could have seen that arc. I I think necessarily to the extreme events of August. I think that this is a a very interesting town that has a very complicated history that it's working out, trying to figure out how to talk about it, how to look at it, how to respond to it. Um, And this is coming from my Midwestern, I always will identify with the Midwest. So my Midwestern gaze on this town I think that, you know, the university, if, if, if we want to just bracket out the university for a second, the university has tried different maneuvers over the last decade that have talked a lot about inclusivity, that have trying to see themselves as uh, an environment in which uh, many different voices can, can come together. That conversation, though, hasn't always included the community in which the university is housed. Mm. Um, it hasn't always thought about what it brings to or takes away from Charlottesville as a city. And I think the events of August really were a representation of uh, both the tensions 
going on um, with race in this country. I think it's a, it was a total uh, microcosm of actually the way race is and it's coming to a head and budding um, and, 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 and the ensuing violence that can ensue from that, um, that can arrive from that. I think um, the, the events of August really represent both the ways in which the city of Charlottesville is dealing with it but and hasn't, but also the university. And uh, one of my good friends made mention, and she's totally right, um, uh, Andrea Douglas of the Jefferson uh, Heritage Center, stating that, you know, what people forget about at the university is that once you live in Charlottesville, you become a member of this, of the community. Mm -hmm. You're not just a university professor, you're here in Charlottesville. Um, And so I think that in answering your question, was there an arc? I think some people you talk to would say, yeah, it was coming. It was a long time in coming. I think there's a group of individuals who were, were saying no. They were totally shocked by the events. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, how you see yourself as a Southerner, how you see yourself in relationship to the history of this town. Do you consider yourself a townie or just part somebody part of the university or both? I, I think it's a really complex issue. I have, I will be the first to admit, I have a ton of biases and preconceived ideas about various areas of the country, even when I've lived there, mm. about the Midwest, about the, about New England, because I've lived there, about the Eastern Seaboard, and about the South. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say I, I wouldn't have imagined something like this would happen, but in the back of my mind, it was always a fear. It was always a long-term fear. Something like what happened in August could happen. Um, so I didn't. I didn't. I was hoping it wouldn't, but I wasn't entirely surprised because of that fear. Because of that fear. Well, I've got to tell you, living so many years um, in New York City, studying history and the lack of its completion, as I discovered later, many years later, that I hadn't been teaching or reading history really in its completion or its entirety, and I, um, so I carried that too, but at the same time, coming from New York City, where, well, I didn't drive in New York City most of the time, but where, you know, where you lock doors, uh, you know, two and three times, and so forth, when I came to Charlottesville, I, uh, initially, I was still had, of course, that New York state of mind, in the sense that I lock my car doors, and you know, right, and, right. And, you know, I take precautions. But people, people I met in Charlottesville said, "That's crazy. This is Charlottesville." So I have to say, uh, August of last year did surprise me. I was um, actually, as media person, I was covering um, a, a meeting of the NAACP and Progressive Democrats of America in Charlottesville, in a school in right. Charlottesville. As people, uh, the audience, uh, the attendees were checking their or their their texts were binging all over the phones and people were standing up and giving us a play-by-play, if you will, of what was going on walking distance from us. And I must admit, it took me a bit to become aware of what how serious it was at that point. And of course, it became much more serious. I've since... Uh, I've gotten to know Susan Bro uh, very uh-huh. well. Okay, let's uh, let me because we sort of touched on a lot of things here, and I I, uh-huh. I want to make go back and ask uh, the question I had in mind initially. I've always been told, as well as perceived, but I was told this by people who live in Charlottesville, that um, 
they see more often than not, even though publicly they say differently, there are three different communities here. There is Charlottesville, the city, there is the Uh University of Virginia, and there is Albemarle County. And they Uh don't always play nice together. Now, that's what I've heard. Um, I don't think I've experienced it as personally as, 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 as strongly as others have said it. But what is your take on that? Well, I, I think it's. I, I think what's great about that sort of description is that at least it acknowledges that there are different communities that aren't always their interests aren't always being met, mm. and that they're operating in sort of silos. I, I I can't say that I am, you know, very aware of what happens out out of. The, outside of the Charlottesville region. I live in the county, but I live really close to Charlottesville, the city city line, so we basically say we live in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. But I think what it speaks to is um, the various divides uh, that supposedly the elitism of the university and they're not appreciating the, you know, a different kind of elitisms of the city, which then also is working actively to exclude. So, like, the university is an elitism, but claims to and tries to include, it says it's going to, um, the city, which really keeps zones um, that supports a kind of elitism, but you can see the lines, and the county, which has its own identity and interests. I, I've always been struck by, with Charlottesville, the challenge of having, um, I'm African American, and the challenge of having a black middle class in this town, um, and, and where is it, how does it function, it's very, 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 very small. And I think even that tension for myself reveals that um, there's a lot of need for folks for various communities of, of their own, but also those that can come together and, 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 and sort of communicate with one another and express these tensions and concerns that they're having about the region. Um, I, I would say, you know, I've lived a lot of places. I don't think Charlottesville's different than anywhere else, mm-hmm. having these various groups that identify with themselves, but then find ways to exclude other groups, but claim that they want inclusion and, and desire it, truly desire it in some instances. So I don't think it's that different. But I do think, yeah, I, I, yes, I could completely see these three sort of distinct communities existing in Charlottesville. Totally, the University of the City of Charlottesville and then Albemarle County. And it's hard to bring them together. It is so different for me to drive off grounds, off campus, I typically call it campus, not grounds, off campus and then go into the city proper and then head out into the county. I feel like I'm in three different worlds Mm. all within 10 minutes. And I don't know if you have that sensation when you drive around. Well, I do. And that's why I'm so glad I asked the question. Um, because I, I wanted your your perspective because, of course, you are a part of the University of Virginia uh, and you have been here longer than I have. But I feel that way. I mean, I have many guests that are involved with the University of Virginia that are involved with the Albemarle County uh, Board of Supervisors and, of course, the city council. Almost everyone on the city council has been on the show. And also, uh, to much of your point, when I arrived, and of course I, I came into town as a director from New York who had had some success, and I, yes, I hear you laughing because you know where we're going with this. And of course, I wanted to do, I wanted to direct something, and I went around trying to find, uh, uh, you know, who might be interested in my directing a production. I could put it together. I knew how to produce all that stuff, and I wanted to do Ragtime, which was all the the rage mm-hmm. then. 
Um, and we held a casting call and no African-Americans showed up. And I, that was, I didn't understand that because in New York, you know, 500 people show up for any call mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and all different mm -hmm. shapes and sizes and ages. It doesn't matter. Uh, so it was a, it was cold water in my face. And I had an opportunity sometime later uh, to sit down after he had been on the show, our former uh, city manager, Maurice Jones, and in the privacy of his office, I said, where are the African-American people? I want to put them, I want to direct everybody. And he had a logical answer. He simply looked at me, he says, well, they are here, Marcello. But few years after that, I was asked to direct something that I won't name, but it was an annual event in Charlottesville. And I had to convince the people who were hiring me that if this was going to be a historically accurate at all, we had to have African-Americans, Native Americans, you know, and I got blank stares, but I got my way. Okay. Um, we, uh, well, we're going to talk Hollywood films next, I promise. <laughs> well, I, it's just, um, I just knew this was going to be great. Okay. Uh, stay with us, everyone. We're going to take a short break. I, we're having a marvelous conversation, and I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am with Kamanita Higginbotham, who is the new chair of the McIntyre Department of Art at the University of Virginia, who has been very much involved in research into specific emphasis on representation, racial representation, uh, and cultural, cultural forms. And, well, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about film and Disney, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. And now, enjoy Watchfire Music featuring vocal artist Jenny Burton singing Tear Down the House from Is Anybody Listening? talk radio program with my guest, the new chair of the McIntyre Department of Art at the University of Virginia, Carmenita Higginbotham. I just love that. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. I'm enjoying saying it so much, at least trying. In any way, Carmen, we obviously have a lot of missions 
and causes in common with one another, not all of which I knew before asking you to be on when I chased you down the parking lot. Uh, but it, this is, um, it's very enlightening. We've talked a lot a bit about Charlottesville, the university, of course. We'll talk more about the university and your teaching there. But Charlottesville, Albemarle County, Central Virginia, uh, Southern culture versus Midwestern culture versus New York City culture. Let's talk now how, because I see this, because I do this, but maybe not all the listeners would grab this right away. How did you make that connection with Hollywood films and stardom? Well, I I had always enjoyed, um, well, I was an art historian uh, early in my studies, and I was wonderfully exposed to uh, a couple of scholars at my respective institutions, particularly, but particularly in Minnesota, mm. that's where I grew up, um, who really linked art history to film mm. and particularly popular film and there was a there was an ease in which uh, these scholars these instructors that i had uh, saw this this great connective tissue between the way we look at art and process art um, but this other component in the art making of film and even popular film it didn't have to be you know sort of abstract you know high modern yes. film <laughs> and and in doing so it really opened up an avenue to really explore the agency of culture, how culture really pushes on popular representation and how it pushes on popular artistic forms. And it just sort of, it just exploded. And so then, of course, and, and I'm not even, I mean, I would say I'm definitely a fan of older classic Hollywood cinema, but just the artistry and the craftsmanship and then the bodies that, you know, sort of were featured in these types of work, which would be stars, because yeah. stars are glorious uh, sort of receptacles of meaning. They, they offer us a, a wonderful window into what, what values we hold mm. as a culture. And so um, I don't always merge the two, art history and, and um, my work on cinema, but frequently I will talk about films in art history class. And when I teach a Hollywood cinema class, I will bring in works of art just mm. to remind individuals that there is this connection between the two. And, and of course, they are both forms of, of art. They may be different disciplines, but they're certainly both art. And I, I love history. I, I often tell people, I love history, I love politics, I love theater and movies. And when I can direct or perform in a way that combines any of those disciplines, I am in heaven. That's all there is to it. So, do you equate our, say, love for stardom or our being mesmerized by Hollywood stars with a fascination with superheroes and with hero worshipping? Oh, great question. Um, I, I think that Yes, I think there is, there is a link between our interest in stars, which is a long-standing interest. I mean, that's an early 20th century, you know, uh, focus when the mediascape really shifts and we can look at them and sort of revere them and covet them. I think they, we, at least in the United States, within American culture, we are invested in aligning stars with a kind of hero status. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a connection there. 
and sort of superheroes. I think I think what's been happening in cinema lately with superheroes is is very specific. Mm. I, I think that the United States, I think we as an American culture, visual culture, we want superheroes at times of think about bringing history into it at times when historically events seem insurmountable, mm. where things the situation is so perilous that. A regular hero just won't do. Mm. You need someone who has special abilities, who that's more than human, to handle situations, cultural situations that seem to require, that just don't make sense. They seem mm. to require a, a more than human response. And so that's why we have the superhero, you know, sort of surge we have today. Mm. But I do think there is a and make sense of the culture. If we like stars and we know how to revere bodies and what we think they can do and being extraordinary, then superheroes are an extension of that. Yes. And to my latter part of the question is, if that extends to our hero worship in political life, in religious life, mm. in what are other parts of what makes up American culture, is that a potential... Well, what do you think that portends? Okay. I'll leave it <laughs> well, on I you. I think it's, well, it depends on how you use it, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if, if our love of superheroes is to inspire and, 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 and then we attach that same, the same sort of values onto real life figures, then I guess that could, that is a good thing. The downside is when we, you know, create sort of idols of individuals who don't, don't exhibit values that are considered heroic mm. if they are sexist or racist or, you know, or belligerent <laughs> or braggarts or I'm, I'm thinking of a collection of adjectives here. Yes. Um, it makes it extremely difficult to to really see them as heroic figures. That's not what a heroic, a heroic person does. A heroic person is selfless. Mm. A heroic person is selfless for everyone. Yes. And doesn't parcel out based on one's political leanings and doesn't parcel out um, things based on uh, their own personal uh, political or financial agenda, right? So we never expect Superman to, you know, mm. require payment for his services yes. or only save rich people because they can up his profile or those types of things. Rather, there is a requirement for a superhero, those kinds of behaviors. And I think we as a culture gravitate towards the, the fictions, presentations of superheroes when we're lacking that or we're worried about that in our own personal lives, in mm -hmm. our public lives as well. Um, yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. How does uh, Disney figure into all of that? Oh, in terms of the hero business? Yes. Uh -huh. um, well, it, definitely Disney has capitalized on that yes. um, with its acquisition of Marvel and the sort of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that mm. we all are now consuming pretty regularly. <laughs> yes. and it's something crazy like 19 or 20 films into that universe mm. with no signs of stopping. Yes. Um, but Disney, if we... I mean, just to take Disney as a brand and Disney as an idea and Disney as a representation, Disney's always been invested in heroes. Yes. Those are yes. what it celebrate, celebrated in its early fairy tale films, going all the way back to Snow White yes. or to Cinderella from 1950 mm -hmm. and continuing on. And those heroes, that kind of, you know, sort of representation, it 
It has a whole bunch of values <laughs> about yes. what we are intending to see as important. Disney marketed that. It it grew on that. That's that's all that Disney is, really. It's a seller of dreams, yes. of ideas. Yes. What about the getting back to your your history of working in the arts uh, on popular cultural and, and and its gender and race and class disproportionate visibility, say. Mm-hmm. How has that uh, driven you and how is it still driving you to what you are doing even today? I, I think that um, when, when I'm working with popular culture, and I think that's the same thing with when I work of art, um, I'm really curious by the apparent, what, the definite silencing of voices. Mm. What happens when something isn't talked about? And really considering how popular culture or art history or art works, I'm interested in looking at it from the inside out. What, what sort of machine is in place? How does it work to silence? How, how does it work to limit? Not so much looking at something like Disney or looking at something like high painting and wagging my finger and saying, you don't include brown bodies or you don't include working class people or you're deliberately elitist. That definitely has a a, a function and a purpose for a a number of scholars. Mm -hmm. But from my position, I'm interested in what is the mechanism that allows that to continue? Mm -hmm. Like what, what is the formula that has to be in place where we as a culture, we as audiences, all collectively agree, it's okay not to have brown bodies mm. or gay or queer bodies or not to have women there or not to have different classes represented. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that that's really sort of my focus of, of, of what I'm interested in. Gosh, did I answer your question? <laughs> you, you certainly did. You absolutely did. And I'm wondering if feeling the way you obviously do, and dedicating a huge portion of your life to this, is it because, in part, that the late 1800s and early 1900s was uh, were the um, what do I want to say, where you thought you would find the material or the root? That's what I want. Uh, the root. I, I, yes, it, it actually is. It, it feels, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century is such a watershed period it's it, it's a it's a bombardment of change and that's why i like it so much it's a it's a whether it's an economic shift you know uh, which my favorite period of all time is the great depression to study mm. because talk about devastation on all registers and how do you recoup all of that but in that critical sort of period from the late 1800s to early 1900s, you have massive technological changes. You have mm. the firmament of what popular culture is. You have the shift in what American art is. You have a new understanding of how to look at the world and many different voices that are shifting identities as they're trying to find their place within the United States. It's just, it's so rich. It also gives me a lot of historical distance. Yes. which I love so I can really look at trends. Um, my, my running joke is, you know, with artists, um, when you write about them, it's better if they're already dead because yeah. then they can't argue with you yes. <laughs> about whatever you make up. <laughs> but and that's a, that's a, that is a big joke. It is a joke. Yes. But, um, but what you do learn with that historical distance is you can start to look at trajectories 
for them, and also the ways in which scholars put them and thinkers put them in trajectories and audiences that maybe aren't fair or mm. aren't right. It allows you to keep rewriting history, going back and, and examining historical narratives and then fixing them and offering new ways to look at them. Yes. Wow. Oh, wow. Terrific. I'm wondering, we don't have much longer, but I hate to let you go without asking uh, a couple of more questions. And I wonder okay. if all of the things that you said came out of is, is true of life. The, the innovation that came out of the Great Depression, that, uh, what is it, the old uh, cliche, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel that as we go forward, that people seem to have come out of the Great Depression better, quicker, maybe better is a wrong word, but uh, with more diligence, more uh, confidence, that's the word I'm looking for, confidence, then now we live in the residue of the Great Recession from the early 2000s, and uh, it seems like a lot of people have still been left behind and not being heard. Right. What are your thoughts? Well, I, th- I think, I think uh, personally, I think with the Great Depression, it actually didn't, it didn't result in a lot of confidence. I think it resulted in a lot of anxiety, mm-hmm. an, an intense amount of anxiety, uh, how perilous everything is and how short-lived. And, and the only thing that really seemed to act as a gloss over the Great Depression, or the results of the Great Depression, was we got into a war. Yes. We were in World War II, and it sort of galvanized a, you know, a nationalism that required everybody to get behind. Um, I think after the Great Recession, we, we exhibited those same sorts of anxieties and concerns that were experienced after the 1930s about who we are, who we're supposed to be. People sort of got into their camps and, and their groups, and uh, we saw the rise of, you know, uh, sort of hate groups. Same thing happened in the 1940s. Um, an intense kind of nationalism that was, you know, exclusionary yes. and incredibly unfortunate and just not as hopeful as one would would want or would expect for the United States, but certainly not not out of trend with what we've done in the past. So I, I think there's it, it really is unfortunate that the Great Recession, of course, happened, and a lot of lives were affected by that. Um, but we don't spend a lot of time studying the cultural effects of yes. that or thinking about the cultural effects. I think we just just walk – a lot of times we walk around a bit uncertain mm-hmm. about what do we do from here. Yes, we weathered it, but – we're not galvanized by it. Exactly. We're not. Uh, we're not. Uh, we're stronger because we survived, but we're not better. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Oh, it does. It does. That's why I dropped the word "better" the a bit ago too. Uh, <laughs> but what I con- what concerns me most is, and I think you're saying this too, is that yes, we we came through it. We survived, and there that's reason to pat ourselves on the back a bit and and to feel energized, but we were separated too. We've become, right. we've become, we've become cliques. Right. Yeah. Right. Groups that don't, don't seem to want to, that they don't express a kind of common humanity. Yes. You know, that that is truly what, you know, my husband says this all the time, you know, that, that is truly what brings us together is our humanity and reminding it and sometimes needing to remind ourselves and each other of that humanity. And it, you know, it's 
these are tough times. It's a really sad time. I, I have a hard time even opening my newsfeed every morning mm. on my phone because it, after a while you just see this lack of common humanity. And it's almost, it's almost as if during the, the trauma we express it. Right. Yes. We, we, we seem to care. Yes. But then when it's over, instead of learning lessons, we uh, sort of cloister ourselves ourselves off um, in troubling ways. Even if, even if we've learned the lessons, we seem to do the same thing. We pull, okay, the emergency is over. We helped one another. We overlooked, I think, one of the, uh, speaking of movie, not necessarily classic, old enough to be a classic movie yet, but, uh, oh, now I can't think of the title, but it was... Uh, Who's in it? Yes, that's what I'm trying to think of, because I was <laughs> I, he was in Lincoln, and I was in Lincoln, and uh, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, okay. and the, oh, The Inferno, it must have been. With uh, okay. you know the the lava going through the streets and whatever, and at the end of the film, everyone comes out. We've survived, of course, because it's an American film. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone comes out and they're covered in this ash, and the little child says, "Everyone looks the same." Mm. Uh, but we mm. don't we don't go there in reality. Um, well, well, we don't stay there. Yeah, I think there, there is that wonderful moment in which we galvanize, yes. you know, to survive. And you could argue that's the history of the United States, yes. right? The oh, country, yes. this finding the moment to come together. But we don't stay there, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody at the end of that movie, if you take that movie five minutes after that, everybody's going to wash off. Yes. And then they're all going to look differently right and then they're gonna remember that they're gonna emphasize that about themselves as opposed to all the stuff all the elements on the inside that make them the same and and so it's really yes it's one of those those hopeful moments but then the credits have to roll right Mm -hmm. there will no there couldn't possibly be a utopia after that that's not it's not what we do as a country all right i uh (laughs) i am happy to end on that note um, even if it's not the happiest, but it is a gauntlet. Uh, certainly, mm. Carmen has thrown down a gauntlet for all of us to consider, and we have proven, Americans, America has proven in the past that when challenges come, we face them. We just need to be united after the, the devastation is passed. Once we've defeated it, then stick together so perhaps we can prevent them in the future. What do you think, Carmen? I think that, that, that would be it. That's a nice dream. Okay. That's a very nice dream. All right. Okay, then. Well, we have been talking with Carmenita Higginbotham, and I've enjoyed every moment of it. Carmen, I hope you've enjoyed being on the show, and I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All the best to you and, and of course, at University of Virginia as the new chair of the McIntyre Department of Art at the University of Virginia. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Everyone knows about movie ratings, G, PG, PG PG-13, R, NC-17. But for the average moviegoer, the Motion Picture Association of America's Ratings Board, which assigns the ratings, is shrouded in mystery. This film is not yet rated, sheds some light on that controversial process. Filmmaker Kirby Dick set out to figure out how the ratings board operates. He interviewed several notable filmmakers whose work had received ratings they perceived as overly harsh. With the help of a private investigator, he gathered intel on the members of the ratings board, demonstrating its members don't fit the guidelines set out by the MPAA itself. 
Dick even explored the appeals process for lowering a film's rating by submitting a cut of this one and then including in his final cut the footage from those results. This film is not yet rated is equally hilarious, compelling, and infuriating. It's definitely not a family film. The board originally rated it NC-17, but the lengths to which Dick goes in getting to the bottom of how movies receive their ratings are a dynamite watch. His exposure of the system's hypocrisy is instructive and entertaining for both the film lovers and casual moviegoers among us. This film is not yet rated, not in theaters, Discovery Through Rental. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Everyone knows about movie ratings, G, PG, PG-13, R, NC-17. But for the average moviegoer, the Motion Picture Association of America's Ratings Board, which assigns the ratings, is shrouded in mystery. This film is not yet rated, sheds some light on that controversial process. Filmmaker Kirby Dick set out to figure out how the ratings board operates. He interviewed several notable filmmakers whose work had received ratings they perceived as overly harsh. With the help of a private investigator, he gathered intel on the members of the ratings board, demonstrating its members don't fit the guidelines set out by the MPAA itself. Dick even explored the appeals process for lowering a film's rating by submitting a cut of this one and then including in his final cut the footage from those results. This film is not yet rated is equally hilarious, compelling, and infuriating. It's definitely not a family film. The board originally rated it NC-17, but the lengths to which Dick goes in getting to the bottom of how movies receive their ratings are a dynamite watch. His exposure of the system's hypocrisy is instructive and entertaining for both the film lovers and casual moviegoers among us. This film is not yet rated, not in theaters, Discovery Through Rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. Trump quotes plus blackface dotes equals state of our union? The moment we acquiesce to labeling, then ignoring, hearing, then forgetting, consumed with connecting without human communion, we are herded onto the proverbial bandwagon of repetitive hyperbole, attacking low-hanging fruit, forgetting how perpetrators like our president thrive on the superficialities of a surface-to-airtime media target our focus. More than Trump and Commonwealth Trio, it is their past path pavers and current enablers that have earned our buyer beware scrutiny. David Sorison's, Roy Moore, Mitch McConnell's Brett Kavanaugh, Devin Nunes, Bookends, Mike Pence and Steve King, NRA and Paul Erickson, Alexander Acosta, and systemic institutions of sexual harassment and racial degradation, like, arguably, Penn State, USA Gymnastics, Eastern Virginia Medical School, and Gucci, seemingly oblivious to recycling shame, betraying innocence, and demeaning the humanity of all not-Caucasian, Protestant, and heterosexual. With the possible exception of the sleaziest of sleaze, it should be no surprise that catch and kill can be a two-way street, 
nor that minds acquired in the know find nothing particularly noteworthy of one vainglory peckerwood wading in the swamp of an excess hollywood pecker in chief whose length in lies belies his explosive fantasies of greatness nonetheless Truly inquiring minds know what happens when willful extortion, blackmail, and habitual distortion of truth hit a potentially wounded but potent post, rising higher than a DC wall of shame, flexing its creative founding muscle as formidable foe against loud-mouthed duo complicit in deceit and reputation destruction. Karma teaches those who seek salvation in good old boys' pale-faced government and male-dominated Wall Street secrets will suffer much of the same fate as the less fortunate they seemingly can't resist abusing. Is not the answer we're denying hate, like that which attack U.C. Smollett, Frank Robinson, Anita Hill, and Valerie Plain, lives on just under our national consciousness, ever waiting for a little prick to release its load of anti-American venom, poisoning the very ideals found in Constitution, Bible, and a radiant winter solstice promise. Is President Donald Trump a foreign agent? Is the South Shall Rise Again the only real Southern strategy? Is media that traded its independent investigative reporting for regurgitating conjecture our friend or foe? Is traditional masculinity defined by sexism? Is wearing blackface a joke or anti-emancipation proclamation? Indeed, we are in turbulent waters navigating challenging waves of self-destruction. But if we can just manage to rid ourselves of all anchors to our hateful past, all denial of what we've wrought on ourselves, and all negatively labeling others for what we cannot abide in ourselves, we may just discover enough light within to enlighten our world. Surely we are more than a tea-stained American dream, whitewashing our blackface nightmares and restricting our national ID to ICE, red, blue, and purple states, black v. white, and LGBTQ v. straight. Choosing Stacey Abrams to respond to the State of the Union address was a pragmatic unification gesture not just because she is a woman of color, but because she is a woman who stood tall for her right to be treated equally and proving herself superior to the corruption of opponents, won the national acclaim, audience, and admiration of all Americans who, like John Dingle, exemplify true patriotism, which is the courageous honesty to help the home of the brave find its way home. I wish we didn't live in a nation where one's political leanings, sexual persuasions, or hue of skin aroused any need for discussion. I wish we hadn't diminished that for which we were called to be stewards. I'm sorry our equality and justice was ever determined by physical body parts, instead of those whose examples we follow, to whom we bestow the batons of power, and whose company we keep in our aloneness. But when a loved one is assaulted and our first concern is the skin color of the assailant, is she less raped if the penis is wiped? It is we ourselves who have failed to recognize that the power of our demons within withers when we let go of them. I wish no humiliating poverty on any human being, no rape for man, woman, or nation, and I hope revenge, rage, justice, and equality will one day be blind enough to see setting our table for eternal 
internal peace. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.